have no hands but yours to tend my sheep. No handkerchief but yours to dry the eyes of those who weep. I have no arms but yours with which to hold the ones grown weary from the struggle and weak from growing Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service. Above all, I'll seek out light, love, and helping hands being shared between our many neighbors on this planet, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. I have no way to open people's eyes Except that you will show them how to trust the inner My guest today on Spirit in Action is Anna Sandich. Anna is the coordinator for the Friends Peace Teams after having served with two different projects in Burundi and Rwanda in East Africa as part of the African Great Lakes Initiative. Anna was raised in the Assemblies of God Church, but had her first serious break with the church at the age of 12. At 15, she sought out Quakers, finding herself at home from the start at Friends Meeting. She was a professional organizer in her 20s, but found a leading to more securely connect her employment work with her spiritual work, and found that with the Friends Peace Teams. Anna, I'm so glad to run into you here this weekend. Having seen you about a month ago, I had no idea we'd have the chance to have this interview. What are you doing here at the Iowa Yearly Meeting Conservative Session? Well, I had the great pleasure of being able to speak to the yearly meeting on Wednesday night. It was a great opportunity to be among conservative friends. I've never been at Iowa Yearly Meeting before, so I'm really excited to be here. So you're here as a representative of Friends Peace Teams. Is this a ministry for you? Definitely. This is work that I feel called into. I'm still in the discernment process of what the actual ministry, now that I'm in a more of a formal role within the organization, but it's definitely a ministry for both me and, I think, the organization. As a Quaker, I'm used to banding about words like calling, leading, and discernment. Are you Quaker-born? Not Quaker-born, Quaker-convinced. 
I first came to Friends when I was 15. I was raised Assembly of God, very conservative branch of evangelical Christianity, and didn't speak to my condition. It wasn't where I was going to grow. Had a wonderful opportunity to go to a Quaker meeting when I was 15. Just continued to work from there. I was home as soon as I walked in the door. That seems really strange. At 15 years old, you're supposed to be looking for someone to go on a date with. Is that what took you to Quaker meeting? Was there a boy you were interested in? Uh, No, I was the youngest person in the meeting by many, many years. My parents and I don't agree on my current practice of faith. And we're finally able to have conversations where they're almost convinced that it's their fault I became a Quaker because all of those teachings about Jesus and love and equality, I, I believed it. I experienced when I was 12, the church that we were going to was in the inner city of Springfield, which isn't very inner or city, but it was a few blocks from this Catholic mission that was serving homeless people. We were doing this big capital campaign, uh, marble steps, and the homeless people were sleeping on the steps of our church, but then our pastor was calling to have them arrested, and this just really did not set well with me and my understanding of Christianity and reaching out. And so I spoke out against that. I wrote a letter to the pastor. and At the age of 12? Yeah, yeah. It was something that didn't seem right. It was, it was unjust and wasn't in my understanding of how we were supposed to act as Christians. And I kind of did it in a probably a too smart aleck way. I sent him a thank you note that was probably not worded in the most respectful way, and I got in a lot of trouble for that. And from that point on, it was this constant struggle of believing what I was reading and hearing, but then seeing actions in the church that were completely counter to what I believed true and, and what I was being taught. And I met the librarian at my very small school. I think we had 150 people in our school, and she happened to be one of the few Quakers around for miles. And I was one of her volunteers in the library, and I would come in and I would rant about all of the frustration and injustices of the church that I belonged to. And one day she just finally said, and she'd been listening to me rant for about you know two or three years, and finally one day she said, well, I go to this meeting, we don't proselytize, and I don't want you to think I'm trying to convert you or anything, but I think you might find it helpful if you came to this meeting. But I really would want you to get your parents' permission first. I want them to be comfortable with that. So she kind of explained gently what her understanding of friends were, and I went home to ask permission, and my parents didn't really know what Quakers were, but they thought they were Christian, so they thought it would be okay. And the deal was, go to Sunday school on Sunday morning, stay for your normal church service, have your homework done, stay for family dinner, and then be back in time for prayer services on Sunday evening, be at Wednesday night service, and if there's a tent revival, you have to be at the revival. And it was by the grace of God. Quaker meeting was at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And so she would pick me up. I went to Quaker meeting. My first meeting, I walked in. There really was about a 20-year age difference between me and everybody in the room. But I just, I was home. I mean, I just knew it as soon as I walked in the door. And so I kept that pace for about a year and a half when I graduated high school early. And, and then I had a lot more freedom. I only had to go to Quaker meeting on Sunday. I didn't have to do all the other. So it was great. What was it that fit for you? What was it that made you feel home? Can you put that into words? Well, growing up in the Assembly of God, it wasn't something that spoke to me. I had a lot of questions. There were a lot of unanswered things that I I saw as truth, but I didn't see 
how it fit in to what I was being taught as well. I mean, there were a lot of these holes in the theology that I grew up in. Like the whole Noah Ark thing just didn't make sense to me. The math was wrong. The, you know, you had predators and prey, and I just I couldn't buy it. And I wasn't really encouraged to question. And when I came into the Quaker meeting, one there was immediate acceptance just for who I was. They were so happy to see me there, not because I was somebody's child. They were just really happy to see me as a human being, and I felt that immediately. And that was really powerful. Just total acceptance for who I was. Faults and everything, and then the the questioning and the querying and the seeking and the searching was definitely encouraged and modeled, and opportunities were there for that. And it just that's where I needed to be. It was amazing. So I guess you went to Quaker meeting. It must have been about fifteen years ago or so that you stumbled upon it. What have you been doing since, and how did you end up with this Friends Peace Teams organization? Well, it's been a long, winding journey. I made a lot of mistakes. Got to learn from a lot of those mistakes. Got my undergraduate degree, and left halfway through that. Came back. Came back to friends' meetings. That's a long. I mean, that's a long question. It's a really long question. The pivotal point for me was when I finally made it to graduate school. I had been attending the Quaker meeting in in Springfield, Missouri, and working on my undergraduate degree. And then way opened for us to go to St. Louis, my husband and I, and I started working on my master's in social work with a community focus. And I became a full-time political organizer, and I was working with a coalition and organization that was doing demonstrations. And we, you know, filed an injunction against the Secret Service. We were infiltrating Tom Ridge town hall meetings. You know, we were hardcore activist type of group, and it was a wonderful experience. But it wasn't where I felt. I mean, I could do it. It was good. It was exciting. It was thrilling. But it really wasn't where I belonged spiritually. My spiritual life and my work life felt sometimes at odds with each other. At best, just on parallel paths that never quite intersected. I got invited to participate in a training in Nova Scotia, Canada, at the Pearson Peacekeeping Institute, where I learned how the UN does international peacekeeping operations. And while I was there. I walked into the classroom, not really knowing what to expect, but kind of expected I would be with NGOs and diplomats and those type of people. And the majority of the class were in military uniforms, and they were School of the Americas graduates. And I was really not prepared for that. There was another person who was there who was the editor of Peace Magazine, Meta Spencer, and she was a hardcore, nonviolent activist and had been working closely with Jean Sharp. And Meta was really a great presence for me because in my daily life, in my work life, I was on the streets. I was an advocate.、Um, I was challenger, you know, to the system and on my soapbox all the time. But in this setting, that just really wouldn't have been good. But Meta picked up that role, and she was the person who was challenging the group and really highlighting the possibilities for nonviolent intervention. And the whole structure of the class is that you're given a case scenario and you plan a UN international peacekeeping operation from military insertion strategy to government building humanitarian exit strategy. The first few days, military officers know exactly what they're doing, and they're planning where the checkpoints are going to be, and and what to do with the arsenals. And then we get a couple of days into the workshop, and the facilitators say, "Okay, now you have twenty-five thousand refugees that you have to deal with." And the military officers were kind of like, 
what do we do now? And we started having these amazing conversations around human rights and humanitarian assistance and how military can sometimes interfere with that, but also how sometimes the good intentions of humanitarian workers can make it more dangerous for the people. And it was this real give and take exchange. And there was this moment of stepping back and just really hearing what they were saying and, and giving validity to their concerns. And it was a real eye-opening experience for me. If I didn't have to be on the soapbox, that I had so much to gain from listening. And there was one gentleman who was in Sierra Leone as a UN peacekeeper, and it was very difficult for him. He was challenging this nonviolent belief the most. And in one of the sessions where Meta was really in her role and, and up there uplifting nonviolent resistance, he started banging his fist on the table. And she was really shaken. And she said, what are you doing? That's so incredibly rude. And, and he said, well, every time you're out there organizing some rally or nonviolent resistance, I'm hacking somebody with a machete. How are you going to stop me? And the conversation kind of just ended right there. How do you respond to that? But that's a valid point. It was an incredibly valid point. So we started having conversations in the evening, and I started hearing his story and what that experience must have been like for him. And I had to say, I don't know if you could stop something like that nonviolently and just really be honest with him. The week went on and had dinner with another person who'd been part of the gachacha process in Rwanda and how just uplifting and excited he was about this possibility of in a country where there had been mass genocide that communities were able to elect judges to come together and look at a restorative justice model and that that was really what peacemaking was all about and he had been an officer in Rwanda during the UN peacekeeping mission and so that was really uplifting and exciting and by the end of the two weeks after all of these conversations and exercises and looking at human rights and humanitarian assistance and all of these different components that they hadn't really given a lot of attention to, we had an officer from Mexico say, I don't think I can finish my military career. I don't think they're going to like some of the opinions I'm bringing back. And the officer from El Salvador said, you know, everything I do really makes a difference. Not just what I do in my work. He said, that's powerful, but how I purchase things, who I relate to, how I treat people, that has a global impact. And there was this amazing awakening. And the soldier who was banging on the table, at the very end, he said, you know, I don't get this nonviolent stuff. I really don't. But I'm really glad there are people who are working on it. And it was just this incredible change in me of the need and the power to be a loving presence, to really love unconditionally, and to admit that I might be wrong about a few things. That was the turning point that started opening the doors to get me to Burundi. This Pearson Peacekeeping Institute that's up in Nova Scotia, is that something that happens every year? Is it regular? Is it ongoing training type process? Or were you just one of the lucky ones, Anna, that you got in on it when you did? It's a bit of both. They were doing a joint project with the University of Wolfville in Nova Scotia and the United Nations to offer this training. They also got funding from the Canadian government. 
they were having some major funding cuts and they weren't sure that this course was going to be offered, but it was called the Peace Operations Summer Institute. And the goal of the course was to train future UN peacekeepers, military officers who would be leading missions and understanding the whole process of UN peacekeeping so that they could put their role into the bigger picture, as well as bringing diplomats who might be working on behalf of governments in the United Nations as well on understanding what this whole role might be like. And then NGO directors who would need to understand how they fit into the bigger picture. I just happen to get to tag along. So the opportunity is there, but I think it might be dwindling with funding. But they offer other trainings as well. So you said that that ended up leading you to go to Burundi. Tell me about that saga. I was first invited by the African Great Lakes Project of Friends Peace Teens. I didn't really think I was going to go. Dave Sarimka asked me if I wanted to go, and my first response was, no, not really. I think there's something else that I want to do. And the doors kept closing for that something else. He asked me again, and I said, well, no, not really. Let me think about it again. Then he asked me a third time, and the doors still hadn't opened, and I said, okay, well, let me think about it. I went through the clearness process, and then it was, okay, sure, I'll do that. And then he said, okay, go raise the money. And so I had six weeks to raise enough money to support me to be there for three months. And I went over initially with a work camp where we did construction. The African Great Lakes Initiative has work camps where they work in Rwanda, Burundi, Uganda, Kenya. And they are starting some projects in Congo. And I went over with three other Americans. We met a Ugandan while we were there who joined the work camp, and then we were partnered with six to ten Burundian work campers. And at the beginning of the work camp, we did alternatives to violence project training as a team. And then after the AVP course, we went out and started the construction process. And so my first month there was to just be a member of the work camp, to be present with the Burundian friends that I would be working with after the work campers went home, and to to start being a presence there. And the goal was, after the work camp was over, that I would stay and work with the Healing and Rebuilding Our Communities Director, Adrian Yangabo, and then the Women's Women's Association Director, Kasil Natamara, and I know I just mispronounced her name terribly, but working with Kasil to help them look at where their organization was. There were a partner organization of the African Great Lakes Initiative. We were supporting them. Are they all Quaker? You said that you were working with some Burundi friends that's Quakers, and is this whole organization Quaker? Groups that we're working with in all the countries right now are linked through EFI, Evangelical Friends International. So we are working with Evangelical Quakers in Burundi, Rwanda, Uganda, Congo, and Kenya, and there are some FUM friends in Kenya that we are working with as well. Friends United Meeting. So we're working with Quakers in those regions. I was working with Adrian and Casild, looking at the organizations that they have. Adrian is the director of Healing and Rebuilding Our Communities, which offers trauma healing workshops for Hutu and Tutsi, bringing them together into an experiential workshop that looks at symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, ways of dealing with the symptoms, ways of helping family members and community members who might be suffering from symptoms of PTSD, looking at ways of practicing listening together, bringing people together in a safe place to start sharing their stories, to rewrite their story from the individual trauma to the community healing. In the workshops, they look at what are the roots and fruits of the tree of trust and mistrust. How does that tree of mistrust start growing and how do those roots come down and then what fruits do they bear? 
also looking at, well, if that's possible, then how do we start planting the tree of trust? And what do we need to lay down to let those roots grow? And then if we do then, then what fruits will they bear? That metaphor has a really powerful meaning for the Burundians and Rwandans we work with because it's a very agricultural-based society, and so that was something that really resonated with them. So we do that in the workshop, and on the final day, we pair a Hutu and a Tutsi together, and they do a, a blind trust walk. And so a Hutu is blindfolded and is led on through a series of hills and obstacles by a Tutsi member, and then in reverse, the Tutsi is led by the Hutu. Then we come back to the circle and we start sharing the experiences of what it was like to really surrender yourself to the trust of someone who you saw as an enemy. Or if you hadn't seen them as an enemy before, why you hadn't seen them as an enemy. And just start that conversation. And we share meals during midday. So we have Hutu and Tutsi sitting down and breaking bread literally together and seeing the possibility of that the communities can be re-knit and that it's possible to sit down together again. And did you really see it being possible to do that kind of connecting and trusting and all that kind of thing? I guess eight years ago, there were about, I think, 800,000 slaughtered by one another. And here you are doing a blind trust walk together with them. That seems an incredible leap. How do they get there? I mean, you must have been part of the chemistry that made it happen. No, we weren't. I wish I could say we were. We were invited in to help facilitate this program. Some of the Burundian and Rwandan friends had experienced the Alternatives to Violence project through various encounter groups, and Friends Peace Teams had sent in a delegation in 1999 to see what we could bring and help to this region. It was from the experiences with AVP going to South Africa to do some training with reconciliation workers that was facilitated by Quakers in South Africa that... Adrian and Casild and other Burundian friends just really felt called that they needed to be addressing issues of trauma. Conversations around forgiveness and reconciliation couldn't move forward without addressing all of the harm and hurt that happened. And it really was their leadings that pulled this forward. They just invited us into the process to help lift up their strengths with what we had to offer as resources and financial support. And just to be clear, at this point, you are a member of a Friends Peace team when you're out there, right? That's what your role was. I was working as a team member on behalf of the African Great Lakes Initiative of Friends Peace Teams. One of the things that Friends Peace Teams tries to do is the person in the field is just one member of the peace team. My support committee, my clearness committee, the people who fundraised to make sure that I could get there. They were all members of that team, not just in name, but making sure that they stayed connected to the process, that they offered input to the process. So I was just the hands going out into the field, but the whole team was made up of everyone who made it possible for me to get there. And I think that's really important to hold up. And I was also a team member with the Burundians who were doing this work alongside me. They were also team members. Going back, you were raised essentially Pentecostal. I think Assembly of God is Pentecostal. So you were raised in this kind of fundamentalist Christian church. You hopped over to a Quaker meeting, an unprogrammed meeting, I'm assuming. So this is kind of this liberal, different kind of religion than what most people know. And then you're going over there, and when you connect with these EFI Quakers and these FUM Quakers, these branches of Quakers which are more Christian, more mainline, was that a comfortable fit for you, or did their language uh, rankle with you, or how did you adjust to all that? Well, 
I had a lot of opportunity to reconcile my past religious experience with where I was and where I am now. I understood the language. And so being able to reframe it in my understanding of Christianity and my experience of, of Christ and of God, it wasn't the touch point that it used to be. It was, it was much easier to accept. And I think also knowing that and having experienced that at a very early age, it wasn't frightening for me. They danced in the churches that I grew up with, and they drummed in the churches that I grew up with, and glossolalia was very common in the churches that I grew up with, speaking in tongues. So to be worshiping with a group of friends who had very core beliefs that I believed as an unprogrammed friend, but expressed it with very boisterous joy, I wasn't frightened by it because I had experienced, but I got to also see this wonderful marriage of my beliefs with an expression that I grew up with, but I saw the depth and the sincerity that I felt like I didn't see when I was younger. It doesn't mean it wasn't there, I just wasn't able to see it. So it wasn't the difficult experience I thought it was going to be. It was really kind of refreshing and nice. So Anna, you spent three months there on your first trip there. What happened from there? What year was that? That was last year. This is 2006, so that was 2005. I was there in July, August, and came home at the end of September. After I got back from Burundi in the end of September, I was actually clerking Missouri Valley Friends Conference. I got home that weekend, had two days, and then I drove up to Lawrence, Kansas, where we were having Missouri Valley Friends Conference. I also had malaria, so that was an amazing experience. So that's kind of a blur After that, I just really took advantage of being unemployed. I was actually looking for the opportunity to work in Africa. I'd fallen in love with being in Burundi, and I was looking for any opportunity to be there full-time. My husband was open to that. And again, we just didn't open for that to happen. And Dave Sarimka came back to me, and he said, you know, in January, would you like to go back to Burundi and do this project on behalf of the African Great Lakes Initiative? And this time I didn't have to be asked three times. I said yes. So they asked me to go back to Burundi in January of this year, of 2006, to collect stories of war survivors, some of which had been through the Healing and Rebuilding Our Communities program. My husband, who is an Alternatives to Violence Project facilitator, was invited to go along and conduct AVP workshops with the Guardian de la Paix, which were community members, mostly young men, 15 14, some younger, some older, who were in the communities that were recruited by the Burundian government to be the home militia. So they were armed, not trained, told to protect the communities during the civil war that was happening. And then during the disarmament, demobilization, and reintegration process, were not invited into that process. And so they had seen themselves as soldiers. They were armed as soldiers, but then they didn't get any of the benefits of soldier who was commissioned. So there was a lot of tension around that, and that was still being negotiated in the peace process, and a lot of them were feeling left out of that process. And so the AVP Burundi project thought that this would be a really nice opportunity to bring in some extra funds and do some work with the Guardian de la Paix. So Tom got to do that while I was collecting stories of survivors. So while he was going around Burundi, we flew in together. We spent the first night in Bujumbura together, and then I don't think we saw each other till we got back into the main city to fly out together. So for three weeks, he was traveling along the countryside, having a great time. 
and I was going to four different communities in Burundi. And our initial goal when we set this up was to do a program evaluation of the Healing and Rebuilding Our Communities program. And we had these wonderful list of questions, and we had our formal evaluation form that we were going to use. And I sat down in my first interview, and I realized that that's a nice framework, but that's really not why we're here. I worked with my Rwandan colleague who was working as my translator, Teanest Bizimana, and together we followed the base questions that we really wanted to gather the information, but then we just really, again, sat back, opened up the invitation, and the stories just poured out. The individuals that we spoke with took it where they needed to go, and they shared what they needed to share. The information and, and the love that we got out of that process was just incredible. A story I like to share, which is pretty depressing at one level, to me is incredibly amazing, is the story of Chiza Conceal. Chiza had not been through one of our trauma programs. She hadn't had the opportunity to experience that yet. When Chiza heard that we were going to be in the area, she wanted to come and share her story. And that's how we ended up getting all these different voices. We had voices of some people who had been through the program, some who were family members, some who were facilitators, and some who didn't even know that we were there but knew we were gathering stories. She walked over three hours to tell us her story. And so we met in this little side room at the Catholic Mission in Burasira. She came in, did the formal greetings. She sat down. She's very stoic, very, very solid woman. And she begins to tell her story about when the war began, she fled to her mother-in-law's house. When she just got to her mother-in-law's house, the people came. They took her mother-in-law and they killed her. And then as she was fleeing back to her home, she heard that they had burned her mother-in-law's body. And she was devastated because she loved her mother-in-law. She got back to her home and her husband and her son were being dragged away just as she was coming home. And she saw them beaten very badly before her eyes. And the mob carried them away, and she wasn't sure if they were alive or if they were dead. And so the next morning she got up very early. She heard and assumed that they'd been taken to the prison in Ngozi. They had been accused of committing some of the crimes that were happening. And this is in the middle of all of the chaos and the horror that's happening between Hutus and Tutsis. So the next morning she was going to meet them at prison to take them food, and a neighbor came up to her and gently said, don't bother, they were killed last night. And in her story she stops and she says, that was the second bad thing that happened to me. And so after her oldest son and her husband was killed, she fled to her mother's house, which was in a different province, and her children were coming with her, and sometimes they would stay, and it was kind of a sketchy moment in that story of knowing exactly where the children were in the process. But she fled to her mother's house, where her mother then was taken and beaten and killed before her eyes. Devastated, she comes back to her home, not feeling safe, I think she'd been home for a while, and a man from the internally displaced persons camp. By this time, Tutsi soldiers were gathering Tutsis up to live in camps for protection so they could protect them better, and Hutus were either forced to flee into the bush or to flee across the borders for safety. Those who were left in between were kind of at the mercy of both groups. As their identity was in question, were you Tutsi, were you Hutu? And there's a lot of stories of families who 
a Hutu wife was married to a Tutsi husband and neither party wanted to invite them into safety or saw them both as enemies and therefore were targeted by both groups. And so there was a lot, a lot of that happening. As one friend said, they'd been marrying together for over 300 years. Of course, there would be mixed marriages. But Chiza came back to her home looking for a little bit of safety and a man from the internally displaced persons came and he beat her and he raped her. And again, she's telling me this story and she's not crying. She's just just telling it as this, this is life, this is what happens. She told me that that was the first time she'd told that story in 10 years, that she had never told anybody, that she was afraid to tell anyone. She said that she had health problems. She was afraid that she had AIDS, but she didn't want to go to a clinic because then she was afraid that would add more shame. And sometimes it was better just not to know. She expressed over and over again this deep sense of shame, and all I could do was sit there with her and hold her hand and just try to encourage her that, no, she was incredibly strong to have survived this and to be the woman that she was. And it was really a hard place to be. I felt a lot of guilt. Chisa went on to tell her story, her children, the ones that had still lived. One of her children, who was going to school, couldn't finish school. He went blind, and she was hoping that it was his education that was going to help pull the family out. They lost their house during the war, and she's been trying to rebuild. And the children have decided that they can't live with her anymore, that it's too shameful to live with her, so they've become street children. And she just had all of these horrible burdens, and the suffering was just really immense. And after she told her story, we sat in silence, holding hands, we sat in silence. And then she turns to me, and she just has this amazing look on her face, and she says, thank you so much for hearing my story. I was blown away. That's all I did, and that's all she wanted. She wasn't asking for anything else. She never asked for anything. She just wanted to tell her story. And we asked her what she had to share with the United States. Was there a message that she wanted us to know? And she wanted us to be mindful of what war can do and to pray for them and be present with them and to not forget them. And it was in that moment that Chiza taught me that it doesn't matter how much power and privilege I have. There's just some suffering I can't do anything about that doesn't absolve me of not being present with it. And that she was offering me this amazing gift of love and forgiveness. She was forgiving me for my limitations. And she was offering me the gift to take on her burden for a little while so she didn't have to carry it, so I could take it back and share that with friends and share that with people in the United States who might not be aware of this type of suffering or aware of how personal war can be. It was an amazing gift. Chisa keeps coming back to remind me the importance of this work isn't necessarily bringing great programs, but being that loving presence, offering a safe place, reminding friends and survivors and brothers and sisters that we all have value. I think that's the amazing work that's happening in Burundi and Rwanda and the other programs. One woman that I spoke with said, this division that came between us, God doesn't divide. This division came from man. She said that if we remember we are all children of God, we'll never be divided again. And there's this hunger and this depth for reconnecting as a community. 
And the programs help facilitate that. They create opportunities for that to happen, but it's not anything we're doing. We just are able to be present and bear witness to it, I believe.
beneath the great big dipper We are washed by the very same rain We are swimming in the stream together Some in power and some in pain We can worship this crown we walk on Cherishing the beings that we live beside Loving spirits will live forever We're all swimming to the other side Loving spirits will live forever We're all swimming to the other side So, Anna, I guess there's a piece of this I haven't quite got in perspective. How are you affording to do this? Well, I was really fortunate on two accounts. I had a spouse that was working full-time and very supportive and considered this an extension of his ministry, something that he could do in partnership with me. And the fundraising, I don't like to fundraise. I hate to ask people for funding, which is probably not good considering my current position. But it's really easy to fundraise for something, one that you believe in, that you see the truth and the value in it, and... What I realized was I wasn't asking people to support me going over. I was asking people to support the work of Burundians and Rwandans who were ready to start taking care of the peace-building process themselves. But sometimes you need a third side coming in to help create some safety, and sometimes you need a different perspective to help you see things differently. And I had so many people say to me, I'm not at a place in my life where I can go and do that, although I think this is really important work, but I'm so glad that I can send you in my stead. So it really was this community effort. I was going on behalf of hundreds of people who financially supported it and made it possible. It really was just things falling into place and spirit making it happen. And I've heard that experience with other Friends Peace Teams members who felt called to do this work, whether it was join a work camp, go facilitate ADP, help assist in the Friends Women's Association AIDS clinic, whatever they felt called to do, the money came. It does require a time commitment, but again, it's how you're called, so you have to figure out what's going to work best with what you have, the flexibility and the freedom to do that. And I think that's one of the nice things about Friends Peace Teams is that they understand the realities of life, but also understand that if you're called, then way will open, and helping facilitate that is an important part of their mission. Way, way, way back at the beginning somewhere, Anna, you mentioned about sitting with a clearness committee to discern this. I think that clearness committees are something that a lot of folks in general population have no idea what you're talking about. You want to say what you actually did? Sure. On a clearness committee, you invite people that you believe are going to have some multiple perspectives, people that you trust. In Quaker circles, it's usually friends of a meeting who know you or have had experience in what you are seeking clearness about. And in seeking clearness, it's trying to figure out if this is really what I'm supposed to do. Is this a good idea? Is this an idea that has a divine purpose? Is this just a good adventure? And sometimes good adventures are okay. And and finding clearness on how you're going to operate if you go over, what do you feel called to do? Do you feel called to have an adventure and experience and do something positive while you're there? Or do you feel called into a ministry? And what would that ministry be while you're there? And this group of friends, whether they're Quakers or just people that you trust, help you answer some really difficult questions. Some of the places that Friends Peace Teams go to are not always physically safe. 
there have been bombing and shelling and gunfights in the streets in some of the places we go. And so you need to discern that. Am I willing to go into a dangerous situation? What are the things? What are the fears? How will I handle it if this arises? And it's kind of a combination place of figuring out if this really is where I belong, as well as, okay, once I get there, how am I going to deal with all the things that might come up? And, and it's really nice to have those different perspectives and experiences because they're going to think about things that you wouldn't think about. My sense of the clearness process is that it's got this ineffable portion of it, which is the divine thing that you're talking about. I guess anybody could write up a list of pros and cons, and maybe you did that. You wrote up your pros and cons. I should, shouldn't. But then you sit with this group of friends who help you focus spiritually. Did you have some experience of transcending the pro and con columns? Yeah. I mean, when you're looking at going into an active war zone, the con column gets awfully long. I think it was through sitting with friends in a very worshipful place, lifting up those concerns, and then realizing, knowing that all of those concerns that lie there did not alleviate the concern to go. And it was through that corporate discernment, it was through that corporate worship, that it became clear that I wasn't going by myself. And when I was there, I wasn't going to be alone. If this was truly a spiritual calling, then I was going to be accompanied by all the friends who held me in prayer while I was there. That spirit would not let me go unattended. And I had that more reinforced while I was in Burundi than before I went. I continually ran into folks who prayed with me. People that I didn't know would come up and ask to pray with me. There were some prayers where I felt anointed. There were prayers of gratitude, and there were prayers sending me forth to do work. There were prayers that called me out of myself and reminded me that this was not of me and that I was there to do something more or be open to do something more. And if I hadn't done the preparation before I went, I would have never seen that. I would have been doing a nice humanitarian mission of organizational capacity building and building a school and I would have done all the nice social work things but I wouldn't have had the deep spiritual experience that being in that spiritual discernment process allowed me to do. I have a couple pictures of you in my mind. I see Anna beforehand as a political organizer. I see you rapping heavily on the door and I hear you calling out people and rapid fire telling them. Maybe this is totally my imagination. But now I see a kind of an ohm, Anna, going and listening with eyes and heart open. Am I making this up or was there some real transition like that that did happen for you? The door rapping Anna existed, but it really wasn't, it wasn't me. And that's where that disconnect between work and my spiritual life was so present that I couldn't ignore it. I did that. I did the door knocking, going door to door. Are you in support of this war? Tell me why you're in support of this war. Canvassing. That was where I needed to be then. I needed to experience that, to know that that's not who I was, and to know that there are people who are called to do that and who do that well, and that there is an important place for people who can do that. But that wasn't where I was called. It was the experiences in Canada. It was my experiences in Oslo with the disarmament conference. It was my experiences in Quaker meeting. 
all of that led me to see myself differently when I was in Burundi. There were a lot of social and cultural things in Burundi. Women don't have a lot of equality. They don't have equal voice. There's a lot of homophobia. There's a lot of acceptance, though. I had to be really conscious of why I was there. I wasn't there to take up women's rights. I wasn't there to do all of these other things. That will happen in time. So there was this transition. I don't know that it was an aha moment, but there was this transition of realizing that I have a lot more to give by being quiet than by knocking on the door. So you learned how to be quiet, and then you became coordinator. And I have the sense that a coordinator doesn't get to be quiet very much. I think they have to be on the phone constantly. What do you do as coordinator for the Friends Peace Teams? This is a brand new position for Friends Peace Teams. We've been an all-volunteer staff with the exception of our African Great Lakes program. That's been a part-time staff person, and Dave Zaremka has been coordinating that since 1999. Friends Peace Teams, as an overarching organization, has been volunteer. Our Latin America program, we have a small budding program in Colombia, is staffed by a volunteer at this time. So we're still kind of in this phase of trying to figure out what does it mean to go from an all-volunteer organization to one that has a full-time staff person and a part-time staff person. How are we going to take all of the things that have been scattered across the United States and in a couple of other continents and bring that into one organized office? So right now it's a lot of real basic office work, setting up the computer, trying to get all of the books into one system, print our newsletter so that it's one newsletter, just real basic mundane things. Eventually, I think the vision of the coordinator is to be a support for the two programs that we have now and then help foster the growth of future programs, making sure that they have the administrative support they need as well as that the program growth and development continues to knit into the overarching mission of Friends Peace Teams of being that long-term presence in communities in conflict and that it's part of our mission to use Quaker process in all the work that we do. And so I think it will be the role of the coordinator to help facilitate that, to call us back to that when we get locked down into the day-to-day machinations of, of running this type of work. And fundraising is a really big component of the coordinator's position to make sure that the work we do is fully supported financially as well. How big of an organization is this? Is it three of you or with all the volunteers? Is it thousands covering the globe? Well, if you include the volunteers, it's thousands covering the globe. And they work very hard to make Friends Peace Teams what it is. If you look at the paid staff underneath the umbrella of Friends Peace Teams, we have myself as a full-time person. We have Dave Zaremka, the African Great Lakes coordinator, who is a part-time but puts in more hours than any part-time person I've ever seen. And then Don Rupert is an assistant for the Africa program. And Val Live Oak is currently working on a volunteer capacity, and she's the coordinator for the Latin America Caribbean program. So officially a staff person, but not on the payroll. I think that Christian peacemaker teams preceded the existence of Friends Peace Teams. In fact, Tom Fox, who died in Iraq, was a Quaker member of Christian peacemaker teams. So Quakers were involved with other religious groups like Mennonites and Brethren in the Christian peacemaker teams. Why Friends Peace Teams as opposed to just being part of Christian peacemaker teams? I think that's a question that we continually need to reflect back on ourselves. 
what are we going to do that meets needs that there are many wonderful accompaniment and peace team organizations. There's Peace Brigades International. There's the Christian Peacemaker Teams. There's the Muslim Peacemaker Teams, which grew out of Christian Peacemaker Teams. There's Nonviolent Peace Force, Fellowship of Reconciliation. The list is endless of teams that go in and do accompaniment work, organizing work. One of the things that we want to hold up for ourselves is that we are a Quaker-centered organization and that we want to make sure we engage in Quaker process, not only in the business of the organization, but in how we develop and create programs. We want to make sure that the partners that we work with in country are equal partners, so they're not working under us, they're working with us. And so we're making a very conscious decision not to have that With CPT, we have been a member of their board, and so we have a relationship with them. One of the things that we're helping with a full-time staff person that we can do is to start re-examining what work CPT is doing, because they're in Colombia, they've had team members in Congo, what work is Nonviolent Peace Force doing that we can hold up, and how can we, in good relation, support them and enhance the work that they're doing, and also have the work that they do enhance our work as well. My personal opinion is that we're not different, but we are different. We're called to do the same work. We're called to work in communities in conflict. We're called to hear and meet the needs that we can. Sometimes our visions are a little different, and sometimes one vision meets the need better than another vision. So where would someone go if they wanted to find out more about it? Maybe they're interested in becoming a volunteer and going being part of this peace process for the world. How would they contact you? How would they read about you? Well, they can contact me personally at our Friends Peace Team's office, which is in St. Louis, Missouri. We have a website of www.friendspeaceteams.org. And there they can link to an email. If they're not on the Internet, they're more than welcome to give me a call at my office, which is 314-621-7262. We're really excited to start hearing what friends want to do, what non-friends want to do. The opportunities are really endless. There's a process. If you're going to become an official team member, we ask that you contact us, start sharing with us your thoughts, your ideas, your leadings. There's an application process that's just a series of queries and questions of why are you called to this? What do you want to bring? What do you want to gain out of this experience? What gifts do you bring? What gifts do you hope to lift up? Then we ask you to find a clearness committee, and we'll help you with that process. We'll help facilitate that. And then coming up with your own leading or ministry or project is a bit overwhelming. We have work camps in the African Great Lakes region, which are for four weeks every summer. You, again, go through the same application process, but there are work camps in Rwanda, Burundi, Uganda, Kenya, and hopefully soon in Congo. You'll be doing everything from making mud bricks to hauling bricks to carrying trees. Construction skills aren't necessary. It's just really about being present and being willing to exchange ideas and cultures just to share your experiences. I have absolutely no construction skills, and it was a great experience for me. Language skills are not that important. We have mixed teams. Most of the team members speak English if they're from the country of origin. We invite other regional African friends to join as well, and so it's a new cultural experience for them. On my work team in Burundi, we had a friend from Uganda, didn't speak French, didn't speak Kurundi, and so it was this wonderful cultural exchange as well. 
it's not all Quaker. So we had friends who were Methodist. We had friends who practiced Islam. We had friends who joined the teams who didn't have any particular faith, but were just happy to be there and participate. So it doesn't have to be a Quaker experience. Well, it is a Quaker experience, but you don't have to be Quaker to experience. Well, Anna, I wish you a lot of luck on learning your new job that you're creating. It's really inspirational to me to hear how you went through that transition, the awakening or the awareness at 12 years old even, and the willingness to speak up and to put yourself where you've known butchery has just happened so recently. It's inspirational to see someone step forward and take the risks with their heart wide open. Well, thank you. I'm finding that if I'm just willing to say yes, amazing things come along and I just get to be there when it happens. Anybody can do this. It doesn't take anything special. Thanks very much. been listening to an interview with Anna Sandich of Friends Peace Teams. You can hear this interview again via my website, northernspiritradio.org, where you can find this program, other programs, and helpful information and links about each program. Music featured on this program has included Swimming to the Other Side by Magpie and Not by Might, Not by Power by Debbie Friedman. The theme music for Spirit in Action is I Have No Hands But Yours by Carol Johnson.
Thank you for listening. I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. You can email me at helpsmeet at usa.net. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. I have no higher cause for you than this To love and serve your neighbor in joy and selflessness To love and serve your neighbor in joy and selflessness